Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Hello, everybody. This is John Vecchione. I'm here with Mark Chenoweth. Chenoweth. Um, welcome to uh, Administrative Static. And we have some good news to report today. Um, as you frequent listeners to this program know, uh, NCLA represents Dr. Stephen Scully up in Rhode Island, who uh, has an underlying condition that could be triggered by having one of the COVID vaccines. He's already had COVID, so he has natural immunity, and he did not want to get the vaccines. And he's a dentist, and he also wears the N95 masks and, and all kinds of things, even more than that, um, when he treats his patients as a he's an oral maxillofacial surgeon. So um, he was banned from practicing. They shut down his whole practice because he wouldn't get vaccinated. And so there were two, it was a true two-track litigation going on, one by us. So NCLA represented him in court, uh, in, in federal court, uh, saying that this was uh, unlawful and the administrative agencies couldn't be doing this. And uh, that case goes on because that case has not been finalized. There's still uh, much outstanding. But in the separate uh, administrative procedure, there is a dismissal stipulation because the order that has kept Dr. Scully uh, unemployed and unable to get unemployment benefits for five and a half months, or, or staff as well, um, he has like 10, uh, a little more than 10 people who work for him. Five and a half months, they have been unable to treat people uh, who need jaw and different types of operations on the mouth. Uh, and often these people are prisoners. This is this is not, um, you know, this is not uh, a practice that was serving, uh, you know, the rich. But um, the governor's order has expired. But what this points out, and and what I think this whole saga points out, I'm glad Dr. Scully is going to be able to go back to work while we continue with his case. Um, that this was wrong, ab initio, which is which is Latin from the very beginning, uh, from the start, and uh, the, 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 and not to have it happen again, obviously. But what it really shows is what happens when the bureaucratic machine gets moving. They've decided that they wanted people vaccinated, and it didn't matter about natural immunity or the fact that these guys are all practically in hazmat suits when they're doing oral maxillofacial surgery as well. And we've got some good video of that, John. The 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 video for the Scully case is coming out this week. I think we're releasing the video either today or tomorrow. Oh, and I was, and uh, yeah, I was yeah. going to mention. So also, there's an interview with uh, Dr. Scully. Uh, it's the first thing on nclalegal.org. I'd go take a look at it. Uh, our our uh, attorneys are uh, there and presenting the case. You know what's happening, and Dr. Scully's there. And I thought he was very affecting. I, I it's really. 
it's kind of staggering. And it's one of the reasons why the administrative agencies are so dangerous. They go in a direction and then they don't stop. There was nothing that would have prevented them from doing an individual uh, analysis and saying, well, look at this. This is a guy with natural immunity. He has everybody is is uh, covered with N95 masks and, and has uh, has, uh, you know, uh, Super sterile, safe. sterile yeah. suits on, you know, sterile. Right. I mean, they, they could have done that, but no, they had a one size fits all. And what happened in Rhode Island? So this isn't just Dr. Scully. There were hundreds and hundreds of other healthcare workers in similar situations. And as you as you probably know, Rhode Island's a small state. It's about a, a million five people, and it's a tiny uh, land area. And every and 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 they do not have that many uh, healthcare providers as it is. Um, and and if if you lose hundreds of people in a state that small, it is bad. It is extremely bad and hard to make up for. So you've got the pandemic itself, which as we know, disrupted all kinds of labor markets. And then you have, you're not, you're putting in all these um, weights um, to knock people out of the healthcare systems who are providers. So it was devastating. So the, the key thing that we always talk about, that we none of us, we're all shocked. I mean, we've seen an awful lot of stuff from the administrative state, but they were letting infected, vaccinated people. So people with COVID, as long as they were vaccinated, could be treating patients in Rhode Island. But uh, unvaccinated people without COVID could not. That is an insane policy. That is a policy that if you saw it on TV or you saw it in a movie, you would think, how did these writers come up with this? And how can I suspend my disbelief to watch this movie? That's what you'd think. You, yeah. you wouldn't be able to believe it. And yet that was the actual policy of Rhode Island. Bureaucratic um, lunacy. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So here I am. I'm infected with COVID. I am actually able to spread it. But they put me in the same suit and, and N95 mask that Dr. Scully's in and off to work I go. And he doesn't have this disease. Hi-ho, hi-ho. Exactly. I mean, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And um, and uh, because, and, and think about this, because let's just play it out a little further. So you are in your N95 mask and all this when you're treating patients with your infection with COVID, but then you go eat, right? You have to go to the bathroom. You have to, you have to leave. You have to, you don't have the hazmat suit all day. You're with your colleagues. I mean, who the heck knows what happens? You, you should uh, you know, maybe people with active COVID should isolate for the three days, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what thought. you should do. I mean, it's kind of crazy to have actively transmissible people treating the healthcare, uh, being in healthcare when people who are unvaccinated and also don't have the disease are excluded. That's, well, that's the, that's the lunacy, right? It's the combination. You could imagine that the yeah. shortage got so bad that you would need to let some of these COVID infected folks back in to treat, but not if you still have people on the sidelines who are unaffected <laughs> and they are not allowing the, to, to treat just because they're unvaccinated, but they have natural immunity. I mean, that's, that's, that's the part to me that's so insane. And, and how did that happen? How it happened is a one size fits all administrative rule. And it also happened because once again, the legislature wasn't involved. Right. The legislature would never vote for that policy. Never. Not in a hundred years. And and I don't, you know, Rhode Island is, uh, is known for a a certain amount of, uh, of legislative and, uh, and gubernatorial corruption. But, um, 
I don't think that there's any amount of money that would have people who have to report to the people to uh, vote for this. You can't uh, lubricate that result enough, huh? Yeah, there's no way. There's none. I don't, as I always, even Dunkin' Donuts couldn't get this policy passed in Rhode Island. <laughs> even CVS. Yeah. So, no, those, is it CVS? Who's the other big company? CVS is up there. That's exactly okay. right. So, right. So just for folks who don't know, um, Dunkin' Donuts is uh, headquartered up there in Rhode Island and and just as sometimes Starbucks, you have two on, on a block in some cities in Rhode Island, uh, in the various places, you have Dunkin' Donuts everywhere. You can always, you can always get Dunkin' Donuts coffee and a donut. Uh, there, there's no place in Rhode Island. You're not a, a, a one minute walk from such a place. So that's why, that's why I bring them up. Not that we're insinuating there's anything wrong with Dunkin' Donuts, uh, uh political, uh, uh, Ventures. We don't know anything no, no, about no. them. We just know there's a lot of them in Rhode Island. Yes, the Boston cream <laughs> donut from Dunkin' Donuts is uh, one of one of the greatest things in the world, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> exactly. So, in any in any event, um, so I I always do think about when whenever I'm um, talking about Rhode Island and and it's some of its crazy policies, we always ask, "Hey, did Dunkin' Donuts want that?" But Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> didn't want it. Nobody wanted it. Only the administrative state wanted it. Um, and and that's what happened here. And I, and I think that um, I think that it's good that it's ended. And and the governor has ended it. Now they, the administrative agencies base this on a, gu- a gubernatorial order, but they could have they could have just as they were able to put in a rule allowing people with COVID to go back, they could have let back you know people with um, this type of medical problem. It, his, he he had had Bell's palsy, and this could tra- trigger it again. You could have let him work on that. This isn't some uh, uh, intransience for no reason. This is yeah. this is very considered and scientific. And and I don't think there's anyone in the Rhode Island legislature who would have said, "Oh, don't let that guy operate on on people, uh, you know, on low prisoners and, and patients yeah. in the psychiatric hospital." Right. Exactly. And and so this this five and a half month uh, interruption in his practice and. That's the other thing. There aren't that many oral maxillofacial surgeons in Rhode Island. It's a very small crowd. I think it's less than 20. Um, so it's not like there's a lot of them. And 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 there's not a lot of them serving this population. So it was particularly devastating. Well, and by the time um, he gets the practice back up to speed, right, he's got to rehire his employees. He's got to get everything before he can turn the lights on and start doing procedures again. It's probably going to take several days. It's going to basically be six months that he's without uh, without employment and that his employees were without employment uh, and they weren't allowed to collect unemployment insurance by the state of Rhode Island either. I know, which so. is really because they say that it's their fault. But but here's the thing. If Dr. Scully, how is it the employees? This is another crazy thing, right? Now, Rhode Island spends money on some of the craziest things on earth. It is not, it, there's all kinds of feather bed. There's all kinds of things that go on in Rhode Island. The idea that they couldn't pay these people unemployment when they're when the guy who owns the place is let's let whatever he was knocked out for. How is that the employee's fault? It's crazy. It, 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 no matter what happened to the to, to Dr. Scully, why would you affect all of his employees who are then out of a job? Nope. I'm sorry. This is a vaccination issue. So any vaccination issues, you don't get your unemployment that you've paid in for and been taxed for for uh, your whole life. That is feels like maybe a, an ideological position rather than oh, yeah, a, it's, it's, a reasonable. It, oh, yeah, it's punishment. It's not a reasonable yeah. uh, administrative uh, rule. Administrative punishment without a hearing. Without I mean, there's, a, there's no due process there. That's true. 
That's true. And I'm not even sure who made that. I, I, I mean, I, I have no idea. We, we, we don't represent anyone on that at this time, but, but it, so I don't know all the facts. Maybe we should. Let's look into that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. It's, it's just outrageous. Um, so anyways, but it's not happening to Dr. Stoli today. He's got to get uh, practice back up, but we're glad that he can. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here with John Vecchioni. We have uh, some some less good news to report in another decision that came uh, down this past week from the United States Court of Appeals uh, for the Third Circuit, and the you know, the the this is the case where uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance has been representing landlords against the governor of New Jersey, uh, Governor Murphy uh, up there, had issued Executive Order 128 uh, during, the, uh, during the pandemic. And under the terms of that executive order, uh, tenants were allowed to apply their security deposit against rent. Of course, the problem with that is once your security deposit is gone, then there's no security for the landlord in case you either skip out or or damage the property uh, on your way out the door. There's no way for the uh, for the for the landlord to recover those costs. And in fact, the, the, some of the clients that we have had in this lawsuit have had that sort of problem with uh, with their tenants uh, in New Jersey. And the decision from the Third Circuit uh, that was handed uh, down this week. And let me just. Let me pull this up here. It was before uh, Judges Jordan, Restrepo, and Porter of the Third Circuit, uh, uh, and it was uh, handed down on March 14th of 2022. the The decision uh, is essentially that the that the case is moot, and we've seen this uh, over and over again. And, and I'll, I'll I'll sort of get to the wider point here in a minute. Uh, but specifically, what they're saying here is that the order. Uh, that the, the executive order 128 expired of its own sort of terms that the, the pandemic ended. There were a lot of other orders that expired at the same time. And when I say ended, it's not as though there was some natural end date. There was a, there was a, a decision to end the pandemic uh, in New Jersey. All of these orders uh, ended on the same, on the same date as the result of government action, not as the result of some exogenous uh, or, or outside uh, entity acting. It's not as though the federal government declared that the pandemic was over and that triggered the end of this. The, 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 New, the New Jersey government decided that that uh, these uh, executive orders wouldn't apply anymore. And for that reason, uh, the the court in the Third Circuit has said, well, you know, you, you got what you wanted, essentially. Uh, this this order isn't in effect anymore, and therefore uh, you're you're not damaged. Well, I have a lot of problems with that, starting with the fact that, what do you mean we're not damaged? The damage already occurred. The, the, the tenants are gone. 
the the landlord didn't get the security deposit, they weren't able to pay for the damages. And the response that the Third Circuit has to that is, well, you can bring a standard contract claim in state court to recover uh, the costs uh, against those against those tenants. But the truth is, no one's going to do that because the 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 reason why security deposits are in place uh, is because it's not cost effective to go after somebody for these relatively minor costs. If somebody does a couple hundred dollars worth of damage to your property, you can easily take that out of the security deposit and refund them the remainder. Or if they, you know, if they if they do a couple thousand dollars uh, of damage, then you keep the whole security deposit and and maybe you're not quite whole, but at least you had some incentive there for them not to to do the damage. You had a deterrent. Uh, that's what the the security deposit represents a deterrent. Once that deterrent was gone and the damage was done, I mean that's like the uh, the, the the horse is already let out of the barn at that point, or at least that's the expression that uh, that we use in the Midwest. So uh, I I think that the the court has the wrong view here uh, of this. The idea that you could theoretically go after contract damages uh, in court is just it's just unrealistic, John, and it's not what any of these landlords. Well, uh, it's ludicrous. Where do you do. see it? Do we see any of those cases? Have any been reported? No. No, you don't. You don't see them. Uh, the, the the attorney costs alone would eat up. Uh, I mean, you would come out behind if you went after somebody for this. It would it would be Which the truly unusual case. Security deposits, exactly. That's right. It's the whole reason for them, right? Uh, is it, this problem the, the the fact that contract damages didn't work is what led legislatures to create this sort of uh, security deposit remedy in the first place. It's in the contract. The security deposit is in the contract. The governor single-handedly vitiated a contract term. He is not allowed to do that. He doesn't have the power to do that, and it's a violation of the United States Constitution, the Contracts Clause specifically, for him to have done that. And for the courts to say, "Well, you know, case is over now. It's moot. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of it's out of our hands. It's uh, there's nothing left for us to do to to give you the relief uh, that you want." Uh, uh, is is uh, I think narrow-minded, and the other thing that they say, John, is uh, particular to this case, but we've seen this in other cases. Is well, there's no indication you haven't carried your burden to show that the governor is going to reissue this sort of uh, order again against you. Well, that's a very difficult thing to show. I mean, what more do you need? He hasn't backed off from saying he hasn't said that. Oops, I made a mistake. I'll never do this again. He hasn't conceded that he doesn't have the power to do it. There's nothing to suggest that he wouldn't do it again if given the the opportunity. In fact, I would argue that the way that this whole thing has played out, where the court has allowed him to get away with it, only incentivizes him to do it again because he knows that he can play out the string and that you know, you know, here we are more than a year after his his original conduct and he was able to get away with it. It's just like what happened with the nationwide eviction moratorium that uh, you were able to, the, the government was able to play out the string and they were able to get most of what they wanted. And it took almost a year for the U.S. Supreme Court to finally uh, put an end to it. And without uh, these sort of, without getting the, without getting a decision on the contracts clause uh, issue, uh, there, there's no reason for the governor not to do this again the next time uh, that this rolls around. Now, th- there was one good thing that came out of this. So I want to uh, I want to want to point this out. Uh, and this is uh, I'm just going to quote our our colleague, uh, John Kara Rollins uh, of NCLA was the one who 
who led the fight on this case. And, and she, she said that, uh, quote, we're, we're pleased that the Third Circuit vacated the trial court's decision, which would have set a dangerous precedent that mere regulation could be grounds for nullification by the government of almost any private contract, unquote. So that, that's right. So the, the district court opinion here was especially terrible because it essentially upheld the governor's action. Now, the, what the Third Circuit has done is it said, well, we're not upholding the action. Uh, it's moot. But part of what happens when, when a case is moot is that the lower court decision typically does get vacated. So it was worth doing the appeal, uh, John. Uh, I'm glad NCLA pursued the appeal. We were able to, to, to uh, vacate that district court uh, decision. Uh, and, but it doesn't and- solve this wider problem. And, and it does say that uh, it does also give an incentive for if there's going to be another thing like this for an expiration date at the very beginning when you start it, because the court holds open the idea that they're not going to go for mootness if you stop it when the case is going bad. Right, right. That's true. That's true. But but there's a bigger problem here with with mootness, John, and we've seen this in, in several of your cases uh, yep. having to do with with uh, with the, the shutdowns. Uh, we've seen it with, uh, you know, with the, uh, uh, with the, so with the eviction moratoriums is what I'm is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and we've seen it in in some of our other cases as well around some of the vaccine uh, mandates and and whatnot. But the the problem is that it takes a while for these things to work their way through the courts. And, and by the way, there was a there was quite a delay in this uh, particular case. Uh, uh, before the you know b- before we got to even the, the trial uh, court a decision out there, so so the the courts delay it, the governor delays it, the government does what it can, and then the government has unilateral control over the facts here that mooted the case. That you have one party to the proceeding that when it was just on the cusp of losing, because I believe that it would have lost in the Third Circuit if it hadn't mooted the order, just when it's on the verge of losing, it's able to snatch. Uh, victory from the jaws of defeat and and moot the case. Well, that's not that's not justice. That's not an appropriate uh, way to for the federal courts uh, to to be treated, or for parties who are seeking to have their justice vindicated uh, in the in the federal courts uh, to be treated. And yet, that's what is happening repeatedly in these pandemic cases. And I I know that the the part of what's driving this is mootness doctrine. Part of what's driving this is a, a very uh, unwillingness on the part of judges to stick their necks out. Uh, there isn't a lot of, of, there isn't always a lot of backbone in the federal judiciary, but I, but I, but I want to focus for now on this mootness uh, problem, because I think that, uh, I think that what we have, have seen is the doctrine allows this to happen. And maybe what we need, John, is a change in the doctrine. Maybe we need to say, look, yep. if, if one of the parties has complete control over the facts that are mooting the case, then sorry, you don't get to you don't get to do that. The case isn't mooted by your by your conduct. Your unilateral um, action that you could have done at any time. Yeah, I I think that's true. Um, it, because it's just it's absolutely outrageous that I mean usually private parties get mooted out because of something that happens outside their control, but not with any case against the federal government where it's done something bad and you sue them and say, stop doing something bad. And they stop doing the thing bad right before they're going to lose and you don't get an order so they can go back and do it again. Um, uh, and, and, and also you've spent all that time, energy and money and, um, and, and had your life disrupted and there's no, there's no recourse. It's outrageous. 
I do want to point out that uh, that the judges mentioned that that uh, some of the landlords had separate small claims actions where they were able to to recover uh, damages. So there is there is the small claims court a solution here uh, to a certain extent. You know, I guess for damages, I don't know what the uh, statutory limit is in in New Jersey. Uh, John, maybe you do. You lived up there. I believe there. it's fifteen thousand. Oh, okay. So you know, it, it's going to be the unusual case where there isn't damages of uh, of, of that magnitude. Uh, but you're still dealing with the time, the effort, the energy, and the expense of going through that process rather than just being able to subtract it from your contractual damages. Right? I mean, the whole point of the contract is that this term was built in. This was part of the rental agreement. The governor should not be able to vitiate that. And the contracts clause of the U.S. Constitution should prohibit that. And the judges shouldn't let the governor, through his own actions, wriggle out of it. We'll be back with more right after this. 